Keep surprising people. Uh, we keep returning from these little breaks, <laughs> uh, and, but, but we're back from another. We, we took two weeks off at Christmas, New Year. So yeah. uh, Merry, hope everybody had a Merry Christmas and a and a Happy New Year. And uh, we were rolling along real great for four or five days. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, uh, the wheels kind of came off on Wednesday. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, listen, it's uh, it's good to be back. I am. Uh, this is Alabama politics this week. I am Josh Moon. That is. I'm David Person. That's right, David Person, and just right out of the gate, uh, because you know we we felt like since we've been off for two weeks, we'd give you a, a special treat or punishment, however you view it. Uh, <laughs> well, we have uh, <laughs> House Minority Leader uh, Anthony Daniels with us, Mister Daniels. How are you, sir? I'm much better, buddy. And uh, let's good, and let's go good. ahead and deal with that much better statement because there, there's Ooh. a whole lot of deep meaning in that statement. Why don't you? Tell folks what you've been going through. Well, I've been, if there's a such thing as hell, I've been there. Mm. Um, this this COVID-19 um, process has been extremely difficult and it continues to to have a an impact on me and my way of life. Um, you know, even post uh, the allowed it 14, 10 to 14 days that they mentioned, uh, I'm still dealing with um, a lot of fatigue, um, some back aches, uh, and um, very just you know very tough um, to even going up and down the stairs. Man, it's been very difficult. Mm. So I'm just trying to to uh, get my my wind back and get my energy level back up. I'm doing all the things that I've read about. Certainly wasn't something that I was encouraged to do from a physician, but um, but from friends that are physicians that have talked about doing the ginger root and the vitamin C, D, B, and zinc, uh, and uh, resting, sleeping on my stomach and my side instead of my back so that it doesn't impact my lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will tell you that these are these two weeks um, have been two weeks from hell where uh, severe body aches. Uh, Temperatures of up to 103, um, you know, hmm. a lot of vomiting. I lost some, approximately eight pounds wow. um, and uh, couldn't keep any food down, didn't have an appetite. Uh, and it was just, it was, it was nonstop. And so, but I will tell you that uh, I was, you know, in the hospital twice. I went to Huntsville Hospital ER uh, when I first contracted the virus. Uh, and started getting these symptoms. And then I, um, the following week, I ended up at University of Alabama, Birmingham to get the uh, monoclonal antibodies infusion, which um, I thank God for um, what I believe really suppressed the remaining symptoms uh, to some degree. So it's been a very tough time. And I'm just, you know, just keep me in prayer. I'm trying to battle back. And then move forward. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're you're in you're in relatively good shape. Yeah, here, you yeah. Know, I, you know, I yeah. thought of, I thought I was until I walked in the ring with COVID. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and in fact, Josh, uh, I I was waiting on Anthony for uh, a meeting, 
a Zoom meeting. This is how I found out. And uh, so the other party and I were waiting on Anthony and I just said, let me call him, see what's going on. I call Anthony. He is in the car. Uh, his his uh, sweet wife is driving him from UAB at the time. And Anthony's telling me about where he's been and what's been going on. And he said these words to me. And this is what shook me to my core, Anthony. And I don't I hadn't told you this until this point. It shook me to my core when you said to me, I thought this thing was going to take me out. Yep. Yeah. 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 It was, I was making all type of arrangements um, because I just, I really didn't. My wife, you can see it in her eyes and, and after conversations, I mean, she, she, there were times that she didn't think I was going to make it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he said something similar uh, to me a few days after that, uh, you know, and uh, that's, uh, I mean, it's it's terrible. You know, I, I know uh, Mayor Woodfin from from Birmingham was in with pneumonia uh, for for a few days in in, Bur- in UAB Hospital as well, and uh, you know, both of you guys, I, I would say, are, are in. You know, you're not old, older people. You're you're in you, you try to take care of yourself. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's you're all the all the things that you hear people say to shoot down the seriousness of this virus. Y'all don't fall in those categories, um, you know. And so to to watch it have that sort of effect on, on you guys is is really should really take cause some people some pause, I think. Um you know, I, I mean, because I, I don't get the sense from you that you're somebody that gets sick very easily. No, and, and I try to work out four days a week minimum um, mm-hmm. and and very intensive workouts. And but I will tell you that that's why I think that uh, some of those individuals that are treating this um, virus have gotten it wrong. Because mm-hmm. to preserve treatment like the antibodies, monoclonal um, antibodies, uh, infusion to preserve that or reserve it for individuals that are older is I don't know that that is the best way to to utilize this 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 virus I mean this uh antibodies because there are people that are in their 30s like myself that have suffered and 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 really uh the the antibodies is probably a lifesaver and so Mm -hmm. we're seeing members uh, where well, there's members of Congress that are dying at what 39, mm-hmm. uh, and other state rep, um, representative or, or, or lawmakers in Pennsylvania and, and, and Virginia dying 42, and so I think that we're beginning to see that this virus don't there's no discriminatory factors on your age, and I think that that's something that we have to revisit and look at. Hey. Um, we got to start having conversations about treatment, even in the the younger categories and the appear to be healthy categories. And so that's that's one of the things that I think uh, is missing. And the other thing that I think is missing is there are no instructions on what to do when you're home. Right. There's nothing that, you know, I, I went home with pain meds to 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 help reduce the pain of the body aches. But nobody told me to do vitamin or you know, other things. Those are things that, you know, physician friends of mine and family members that are physicians told me to do the vitamin, you know, B and C and, and D um, and the zinc uh, and, and other folks from um, uh, that religiously drink uh, ginger root uh, told me about that uh, ways to, to boost my immune system. 
but nobody else gave me those instructions. And so we got to communicate more about what you do to treat yourself when you're home, because there's no long hospital stay that's happening once you contract a virus. Most of the folks are going home, right? Yeah. And, and trying yeah, to, well, to. Well, they got to. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so, once they get you a little bit stabilized, they got to get you out of there, you know, because they need the beds at this point. Yep. So, yeah. You know, it's just, it's an eye opening experience, uh, something I've learned. Um, I will tell you, those individuals that say, oh, I'm recovered, you know, I don't know that there is a recovery, right? Because we've not seen this virus play out long term yet. Um, I will tell you that uh, I'm going to get an EKG done uh, just uh, to really check myself out, especially from a respiratory perspective and to make certain that my heart is okay, right? Because we're beginning to see folks dying even weeks after they supposedly recovered from the virus. Those mem- that member of Congress and that, that young man, that, that state senator in Pennsylvania, it was what they contracted the virus early December and died last week, right? And so um, there's a lot of post-COVID, uh, post-14-day or 10-day recovery that we got to pay close attention to that I think we're, we're not paying that close attention to. And so for me, I'm just going to try to take it easy and not overexert myself as much, uh, except for what we're dealing with now. This craziness at the um, uh, our nation's capital yesterday has kind of got me riled up. But other than that, I'm just trying to trying to stay, um, stay below the radar and, and relax. Man, it, uh, it, it's uh... – I I am if look the the advice I can give people is stay home if you don't have to go out. Um, you know, uh, if you can, I know people got to go to work and people got to live, and I I know what you know the, our Republican friends have done here, uh, in for enforcing people kind of back into into office and into their uh, into their lives. Um, uh, wear your masks. Uh, stay the hell away from people if you can stay away from them. Uh, try not to touch anything ever, uh, you know, and, uh, I just, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, that's, that's about the only thing you can do. And, and, you know, and I, I know, I, you know, we made fun of, of Anthony for being overly cautious on here. I mean, he, he, yeah. uh, showed up with a, with a three gallon bucket of, uh, hand sanitizer one day that I'm pretty sure he was drinking. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, a, and, and a mask that covered his entire head. And I mean, it really looked like one of those balloons they were wearing yesterday at the Capitol. Uh, and, uh, you thought I thought it was Halloween again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, if he can get it and it can have this sort of effect on, him then i you know you should take the thing seriously and i i wish people would at this point i don't know what to say to people anymore you know if you're not three hundred fifty thousand people have died i don't know what else to say uh you know to, to get people to take it seriously but may, maybe maybe hearing from somebody that was that, that had it and and was in good shape and was outside of that you know that 70 plus age range that you hear a lot about maybe that'll help some people take it a little more seriously but you know, it, it's good that you recovered just in time for the insurrection, you know, I guess. Um, <laughs> led by, yeah, yeah, led by the, uh, by the brains of the, uh, of the house, Mo Brooks. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I don't even, I don't know anymore, man. I don't know what to say. I, I don't, I, I, I'll say it for you, man. It's, you know, what we we got to stop allowing individuals to have to get a pass into 
talk about events that have happened before that is totally unrelated to the events that are happy that happened yesterday. Comparing Portland or Minnesota to what happened yesterday is someone that wants to use an excuse and not take responsibility. You know, Republicans in Congress and across the nation, they played a role in setting the stage for yesterday's event. They did it so deliberately through an extensive and unrelenting campaign of lies about the election. They repeated these lies as a result. They lied about the fraud. And now they're lying about the act of this domestic terrorism in my mind. And we know that this, when the last time something like this happened, what, they 200 years ago? <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. British soldiers. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I know. Uh, it just, it, it, that, that's what bothers me. And, and I wrote a, I wrote a column today. It basically said that, uh, and basically it did say uh, that, that Tuberville Brooks, uh, Mike Rogers, Gary Palmer, Robert Adderholt, Jerry Carl, and uh, who's the other, that moron from uh, Barry Moore, um, they, they should resign uh, because what they've done, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure about Mo Brooks because Mo Brooks is is probably a true believer here. I, I'm pretty sure that Mo Brooks is legitimately something. crazy. Mo Brooks does not deserve a pass. Mo Brooks is, I'm not is, him is a pass. he led this shit. Um, yeah. He he start. You look at his comments from yesterday, and mm-hmm. I quote. Start taking names and kicking ass. That's in the what he said. Mm-hmm. That is what he said. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah no. I, I mean I'm the not, hypocrisy. And now, yeah. when they this mob of supporters of the president and his storm the Capitol, he wants to go and hide behind his desk. Mm-hmm. But he stoked those flames. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, yeah. He, yeah. Most of all. Yeah, I don't give him a pass whatsoever. My, I, just when I'm talking about Tuberville uh, and the and the other guys, except for Brooks and maybe Barry Moore, I believe those guys knew full well that they were lying to people. All right, they they knew full well that what they were doing was jumping on this train because it was easy for them to get uh, votes and donations in the future from this base of people who want to believe that the election was stolen uh, from Donald Trump. I'm not sure Mo Brooks understands that. I, I, he may be a true believer in what he's doing here and is just legitimately crazy uh, and is out there preaching this nonsense. What he did uh, with that, well, exactly what you mentioned, is deplorable beyond belief. I mean, and then to then follow that up with the jokes uh, at last night on Twitter and the stuff about how this could be Antifa. We don't know. We're getting a lot of, we're getting a lot of information. Well, if it's a lot Antifa, of intelligence is he, in. is he leading the, I mean, he speaking at the rally that he spoke at. Was it, why is he speaking at an Antifa rally? <laughs> yeah. I, I just, it, it just, none of it makes sense, you know, and, yeah. and this nonsense where he, he's telling people that he slept on the floor of his office for four days. How is this dude even, I, I don't understand how he's, how he has any money. How is the Nigerian scammers not gotten him. <laughs> I, I don't understand. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, this is, is it is absolutely astounding to see uh, members of Congress stoke the flames and incite violence against law enforcement. But the very seen, people that consider themselves to be law and order. But they've seen it work for Trump. I mean, so to me, this is you know, this is this is one of those examples where 
you know, the filth and the waste rolls downhill. They've seen it work for Trump. And so they are merely replicating what they think works. And now what they did not expect was for people to actually, and this is stupid, it's colossally stupid on their part, but they didn't actually anticipate that when you incite a mob, a mob is going to riot. They didn't anticipate that because for some damn reason, for some damn reason, uh, they are they they are uh, stupid about the laws of uh, of psychology. You know, you incite a mob, they're going to riot. So you know, I don't know if so, they didn't know it or they just didn't care. Let me tell you something. Well, I think they are disconnected from reality. I think we've been any, in such a twilight any, zone for the past four years. They just they they're not they're not thinking things all the way through. Any person in Congress that want to be effective should be following the lead of Richard Shelby. Mm-hmm. A true statesman, mm-hmm. a true gentleman, a true representation of Alabama. R- Richard Shelby is the reason Alabama is growing. Yeah. And Richard Shelby did not stoop to the level of getting engaged in this hypocrisy. Right. Mm-hmm. And I and I and like you, Anthony, I give I give Senator Shelby all the credit for that. There is one caveat, though. And, and, and I'm going to put out there, as much as I respect him, and even though I disagree with his politics 100%, I respect him. I think he's absolutely what you said. He is a statesman. I just wish that he would be more vocal with his leadership. Because Here's Al- what I will say. Alabamians David. need to hear him say why he wouldn't. Not just that he wouldn't participate, but why he wouldn't. And I and I and I, I understand that, but I would tell you a lot of time the, you know the, folks like Richard Shelby that that uh, Senator Shelby that have been a part of the tradition for some time. A lot of the things that happens, they don't want to have. They don't want to be very. They are not vocal even when they do great good things. They're effective. Right. So a lot of times, yeah, I think that naturally as human beings, we want to hear people talk about it. But in essence, uh, you get more done in a in in more of a uh, behind the scenes and getting, you know, being effective. And we're going to miss him. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so but we have individuals that are jockeying for his position that is going to set us back and undo all the things that have been done. Yeah. Yeah. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to Redstone Arsenal and other places when we have representation of individuals like Brooks, who I don't understand. You know, I think any <laughs> every person in America is questioning how the hell a city so smart elects somebody so uh, divisive. Yeah, and no, that's, I got a word and for that. A, and that's gerrymandering. A, well, yeah, I think that's 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 a part. That certainly is a key part of it, Josh. But I think that what we've got with Mo is somebody who uh, he approaches his approach to being in Congress reminds me a lot of the old biblical prophets. He's somebody who believes that he has a call from God. And I don't think that's an exaggeration. I actually think he does believe it's a call from God uh, to to stand up for certain causes and to take positions 
and certain stances. Meanwhile, the only time you see him is when he's doing that. We do not see him in action when it comes to, and this is what you're, you're talking about, Anthony, when it comes to the well-being of the arsenal, when it comes to the well-being of NASA, when it comes to the economic development of the state, Mo is invisible. But then he surfaces when, you know, when there's some pet cause of his that he thinks he's called by God to address. And that makes him a liability because that's not why we sent him to Congress. Well, I shouldn't say we, because I sure as hell didn't send him there. But <laughs> but that's not why he was sent to Congress. That's he some places I'd like to send him. <laughs> <laughs> like to send him home. You know, yeah. this is this is not that's not why we sent he was sent to Congress. He wasn't sent there have your chance. to follow his yeah, yeah. Well thank God for that. You know, to to pursue these personal moral uh, zealous agendas that he has. That's not why he was sent there. He was supposed to be looking out for the people of the 5th Congressional District, and as far as I'm concerned, he's failed at that. Yeah, you know, I want, I want to say two things. All right, first of all, Mo Brooks is essentially the, the old dude at your HOA who's running around the pool screaming at the black kids, okay? I mean, that's, that's who mm-hmm. he is. Uh, he's, you know, I mean, that's who we've sent to Congress is this crazy person that's in your neighborhood who everybody avoids. We've sent that guy to Congress, but this is, I I think, and and I've had this discussion with a lot of business leaders in this state, uh, and with some very important people, uh, kingmakers, I guess you would say, uh, about Mo Brooks and they didn't take him seriously. You know, and it was, oh, it's, you know, it's Mo. He's fine. He serves his purpose up there. But I think they're starting to realize that they have a real problem on their hands here uh, because Mo is going to run for that Senate seat that Richard Shelby vacates. And so they're going to have to deal with this crazy person and his band of crazies that's going to come along with him. Um, and so I don't know what they're going to do, but they should have cut gives, this off a long I time know ago. Who's giving to him? Who's supporting his campaign? Who's financially backing him? Those are the individuals that we need to be having a conversation with. Mm -hmm. And and there are a lot of people uh, in, you know, that that donated and allowed their donations to go through PACs to Mo Brooks uh, here uh, because, you know, he was a he was a friendly uh, because Mo's door is always open if you've got money uh, and are white. And he, you know, so he, he loves that. And so they but they played this game with him. They played this game with Mo Brooks and a couple of other crazies that they've played this game with as well. Um, and so now we're at the doorstep here of having Mo Brooks as your senator that you rely on him for your Defense Department funding, uh, you know, and, and the defense contracts that flow in. You know, while he's standing up complaining all day long in Congress about the budget and the deficit and all that, hell, all of it is his money. You know, that's ninety percent of that. That deficit stuff is his money that's flowing into the district up there. You know, for, uh, it it drives me insane to listen to him do these things and to know that the people in this state that know better are still backing him. And so, until you get some some people to support better candidates, uh, better voices of reason, and to reel this stuff back in, I don't know what you do. What do you think, Anthony? I think that the people that are giving and supporting this, I think we got to start having conversations. There has to be a broader conversation with them because you can't tell me you're giving to a cause that you don't believe in. Mm-hmm. So I think the question has to be, we got to question those individuals that are giving because they're giving, obviously giving to a cause 
that they believe in. Mm-hmm. And they're not doing anything to to stop it. You know, Richard Shelby is carrying the state of Alabama, has been carrying the state of Alabama for years, right? You know, we have um, Congressman Erdeholt on the Appropriations Committee uh, who's able to help and, and been helpful, uh, especially in North Alabama as well. But we have a, a member of Congress that has not necessarily served our interests. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but so that the the Senate conversation now is not going to. And, yeah. that, and that and those are the conversations that must take place. And it has to be with those that are supporting. And don't you know, tell me your friend if yeah. you're supporting my enemy. Adderhold has been uh, probably as right wing, if not more so than Mo has been. But the difference is, I think you're right. He has also uh, found time to do his job. You know, to actually look out for the people of Alabama when it comes to appropriations and other considerations. So even though he's about as right wing as Mo is, I want to there's something before you you have to get out of here, Anthony. There's something I want to raise that Josh just uh, alluded to, Uh, and that's the issue of race and how this plays into it. Josh said earlier that. you know, Mo's, Mo's got an open door for you if you've got money, and then he slipped in there surreptitiously, and if you're white. And I want to bring up race in this context, especially as it relates to not just the slow but growing realization that people have about Mo Brooks and some of these others, but also about the slow reaction from a law enforcement standpoint to what happened yesterday. Many of us in the black community, and I think increasingly some whites as well, from what I've seen uh, through media reports, are juxtaposing what happened yesterday and the law enforcement response with how the Capitol was secured when there were Black Lives Matters protesters out there. And also how law enforcement has in other locations has dealt with uh, Black Lives Matters people and or just black people who are having encounters with the police. I think it was very eye opening for people to see that police officers and law enforcement people actually understand how to encounter violence directed at them without shooting anybody, without beating the hell out of anybody. That's what we saw yesterday at the Capitol. And so many of us in the black community and some of the white community are saying, hmm, so you all do know how to do that when you want to, when you want to. And my supposition is, and then I'll toss it back to you guys to hear your responses. My supposition is that this is prima facie evidence of white skin privilege. When it comes to how these law enforcement people respond to armed white thugs and also as it relates to the the reticence with which people and the kid gloves with which people have been handling Trump and his incendiary rhetoric, constant stream of bullcrap and incendiary rhetoric and Mo Brooks and others, white skin privilege prima facie evidence. What do you guys think? So so for me, David, I will say this. <clears throat> um, not knowing the details as to whether or not 
the restraint was orchestrated, right? Uh, there are there have been some rumors out there that that uh, law enforcement was told to uh, was was given instructions beforehand. Okay, I'm not certain how true that is. I don't know how true that is, and so I will tell you that there was a very different response that I saw yesterday than what I've seen in Minnesota and other places, or even Huntsville, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. And so um, for me, I felt some type of way, and I don't condone you know, violence in, in general, but I'm also not going to justify violence of any group of people that are protesting, right? There was um, some obvious fatalities yesterday. Some from medical and some from one young lady was killed, was shot, right? And we don't know whether or not that person was shot by police or not. Um, you know, so for me, it does make you feel a certain way to see um, a different reaction to peaceful protests versus those that were obviously an angry mob, right? Uh, in some places. And so uh, I'm not certain as what guidance those officers receive or what preparation. It didn't appear that they were prepared for it. That's number one. And so I'm I'm trying to understand why weren't they prepared for it? Why but, was it there see, more that's, help? Anthony, that's my point. They weren't prepared because we don't see white men as thugs. We don't see white men as terrorists. We don't see white armed men as rioters. They're protesters. Now, black people who are peacefully protesting, oh, they're rioters. We need to get out riot gear. You know, we need to have our batons ready. We need to have our tear gas ready. But uh, but no, if they're white men, even if they have guns and weapons, they're just protesters executing their constitutional right to free speech. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's certainly hard to look at, David. Um, but I, I think that I think that we should probably at some point come back to this conversation after getting all of the details. Right. So that we can have a richer and broader conversation and put things in context for those individuals that don't believe that there was a different response. Right. To a person or march that's led by Black Lives Matters versus the angry mob and, 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 and uh, Trump supporters, basically. And we got to stop saying that this is an anarchist and all these other folks. These are freaking Trump supporters. OK. There were no groups out there that and they're trying to say, oh, there's more evidence. There's not. They always they said this on June 3rd. There's more more evidence. And then we find out that there were no. Um, the individuals that were arrested were from Madison County. Mm -hmm. So this has been the number one playbook and the thing that they pivot to all the time. And so we well, got it's easy. Yeah, it's easy. it's easy to do that because other people believe anything they say. But, you know, and but it's folks like us that have to keep these folks accountable and keep yeah. having a deeper conversation about what really happened so that we don't we don't they don't try to discredit what we're saying before we get to the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because yeah. that's exactly 
what the strategy is. Yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, I, I'll say this. I think uh, police departments all across America can save a whole lot of money on uh, de-escalation tactics uh, in, in training uh, because it's pretty clear that they know how to de-escalate situations like that. You just Now you can just reduce the training down to telling them to pretend like they're white people. Um, and honestly, I mean, if you look at the difference between what took place at these, at these, uh, at any pick up, pick up, uh, Black Lives Matter march, uh, in, in pretty much any city, um, yeah. and, and then, and look at what happened yesterday. I mean, it, they, yeah. they opened the gates for them to, to roll, yeah. roll in, uh, armed people. Opened they, the they gates were taking and retreated, selfies Josh. with them. They opened the gates yeah. and retreated. So, so here's what I would encourage us to do, though, Josh. I would encourage us to look at protests that have happened in D.C. and at the Capitol before and compare those protests to the protests yesterday and the reaction to the protests that were much lighter than the ones that happened yesterday and whether or not the force or the response was more, much more aggressive or not, right? So let's judge that police, particular police force or the Capitol Police. Let's, let's, talk, let's zero in on their response yesterday versus before when they've dealt with something similar and when the group was a younger, more progressive, Black Lives Matter, whatever, you know, all the all the different the groups. And let's look at that instead of painting a broad brush. Uh, and so let's look, let's look at that and have the conversation about that. Because guess what? Who's the Speaker of the House, David? Yeah, Nancy Pelosi's a Democrat. Mm-hmm. But there needs to be a conversation and, and we got to talk about, you know, the actions, who's responsible for the law enforcement at the Capitol, right? And how they respond. And so we got to have a deeper conversation because there needs to be a bipartisan group. I well, mean, you know, I'm over the bipartisan shit. There needs to be Nancy Pelosi, uh, if she is her under her purview, she's going to have to uh, figure out how to prevent this from ever happening again. Right. Well, and 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 I and I don't I don't agree with you that we need to be studious and judicious as we examine this, but I'm just saying there's some and I think Josh is, seems to be saying the same thing, you know, the the that there's it doesn't take a lot to see that first of all, you know, um there was a the, the composition of that crowd uh, was such that they they had access. They were granted. Hell, I can't even get access to the Capitol when I'm going for a regular visit like they did. That's right. They had access yeah. to the Capitol uh, in ways that uh, I don't believe we've ever seen in similar circumstances, meaning where there were protests and, and people that were agitated. It just, I, I mean, it was the, orchestrated. The, the, That's it, why I think that there was some orchestration done mm-hmm. among those individuals that are fa- that were fanning the flames. I really, yeah, truly, I, do. I don't, I don't disagree. I, I, I mean, I think that the, a lot of those the people that were there were were also part of those groups online, and I think but that they were, uh, you know, a lot of police that, officers were there. But that's why I want us to look deeper to figure out who were those individuals. Obviously, those those that are fanning, fanning the flames was given instructions on how to do some of this stuff. Well, yeah, I'm sure that's true. So I want to, I think we got to make an example out of those individuals and bring that out. That's what I'm talking about carefully 
looking deeper at this thing. Well, and because I, yeah, and I, it was an it, it, I'm 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 you know it just makes me feel like there are some people internally that knew more than they shared. Okay, that have more that was more complicit. Okay, and that and that is something to be concerned about, and I think there are reasons to think about that. There, there are reasons to think about that as a very real possibility, just knowing about uh, the kind of infiltration of law enforcement that has happened in local police departments that's been documented. So there is reason to be concerned about that and to think about that. But I'm just saying, I think overall, there's a psychology to law enforcement that we have seen documented and we have seen displayed time and time again but there is a different response. There is a different anticipation when it comes to white skin than when it comes to black skin. And I think that's what we saw yesterday on full display, Anthony, was a law enforcement agency, the Capitol Police and associated entities, you know, the National Guard and city police and whoever else, who did not see these people as this kind of a threat because of their skin color. They, they gave them a presumption that, that is never given to people who are black. And from what we have seen in times past, and there is a photo that's out there, I haven't tried to validate it, but, I, but my, my memory ser- as my memory serves, I think it's probably accurate, of an alignment of army reservist or or some other military uh, uh, peacekeeping or law enforcement entity uh, on the Capitol steps. And the the depiction is such that it, it appears to be at a time when there were black protesters. And these people were, yeah, and I'm back, saying that, yeah. Hmm? Yeah, that was uh, yeah, that was you know Trump ordered them there, and that was part of the problem uh, on Wednesday was was that Trump and the and the federal government would not send the National Guard and some of those federal federal agencies over to help supplant the the Capitol Police or, or help you know s- secure the Capitol, uh, you know, it and so that DC, was part really? uh, also part of the issue, yeah, and so you know it, until way later in the day, you know, he resisted and resisted and resisted, and that was part of the reason why now there there was a uh, you know the push to do the Twenty Fifth Amendment thing. Uh, because he had gone so far off the rails that it frightened even his closest people around him, uh, and and so I, yeah, and you're right. That photo was from that from a Black Lives Matter protest that were taking place around the Capitol at that time, and that's when he stacked them up and had this ridiculous show of force and all this, and uh, you know, but and that wasn't there yesterday, which I think kind of goes to Anthony's point of there was a lot of people that knew this was coming and they didn't do anything about it. Uh, and as a matter of fact, they probably, in a lot of ways, uh, worked with those people to help them gain access to the to the Capitol uh, because they did know exactly where to go. They knew exactly how to get in. They knew exactly where the weak points were. Uh, and they seemed to be welcomed in certain areas by the security people who were supposed to be keeping them out uh, to the point where they were taking damn selfies with them uh, when they come through the door and watching them walk out with podiums uh, and mail from Nancy Pelosi's office. And so, you know, that, but, but I don't think any of that uh, in any way diminishes your point about the diff- uh, the the advantages of being white there because if that were a black group none of that would have ever happened either yeah that, and that's all i'm saying david is that 
because D.C., I think the local, they, they didn't have the numbers. Law enforcement didn't have the numbers they needed to really even manage any of this. You know, typically when there's an event that of that magnitude, that you're well prepared for it, right? And based upon Josh's point, the president did not authorize additional support to support the local government, to support um, D.C., nor uh, those individuals that those members of Congress. Mm-hmm. In fact, yeah, uh, he mentioned that he was going to walk with them, and I, he didn't. He didn't, but yeah, no, he's he's a coward, and he always is. But hey, so, look, this, because this I saw is, officers kind of run because of the crowd was so large, David. Mm-hmm. I saw officers running up the stairs, man, trying to <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and, and and so, I think instead of I think that we don't want them to really be able to use the narrative to say that anyone is against law enforcement because yesterday law enforcement, not having enough law enforcement officers and folks there to help with this thing showed that showed a weakness yesterday. Right. But it was because of the lack of action of the president that caused our law enforcement to be at risk. So if there was, if the president had, if we, if they had the National Guard and all these other folks there to support law enforcement, it probably would have been a very different take. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think that today yeah. we wouldn't, I think that today we will be saying that it is consistent with what we've been seeing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's uh, I think that's true. Hey, right. this is, uh, it's been a very good 45 minute opening segment. Uh, so, uh, uh, but listen, it has been really, it's been really good. Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, a lot of information from, from COVID to, uh, Mm -hmm. to what happened at the Capitol. And, uh, and I think, uh, uh, we, we kicked around a lot of the people that needed to be kicked around and, uh, and, and also, uh, you're very glad that you, you know, are still with us. Uh, uh, yeah, it's look. Uh, Anthony Daniels has joined us, and, and we really do appreciate it. Uh, you know, and um, it uh, we're sorry all that happened to you, and you've had a rough few weeks. But uh, hopefully, things just get better from here, and uh, and and also with the uh, with the country. Well, y'all just keep keep me in prayer and good thoughts, and um, um, but don't let these folks get away with what happened, what they did our most sacred body yesterday. Yeah, that's right. That's We're right. Do what we can. We're going to do that's what right. we can, but we'll, well, we'll slide out of here uh, now and, uh, and come back in. Uh, uh, Aaron, Aaron Haynes is going to join us. That's uh, right. In the next segment uh, and talk about the, you know what? Uh, Democrats also got control of the Senate. I, you know, if that, if that matters to anybody. Uh, so we're going to talk <laughs> a little bit about that, uh, which is somehow back burner news all of a sudden. And, uh, and, and, and some other things from around the state. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Alabama politics this week. Uh, Yeah, that was a really robust conversation with Anthony Daniels that we just had, our friend, the 
uh, House Minority Leader here in the state of Alabama. And now we transition to uh, a young woman whose career I've been following for quite a while. I think I interviewed her probably 10, 15 years ago when she was still uh, with the Associated Press. And now she is an editor at large at a nonprofit news organization called The 19th. And if you watch MSNBC, you've seen her on there quite a bit, providing really sharp, smart commentary on various MSNBC shows. Her name is Erin Haynes. Erin, welcome to the Alabama Politics This Week podcast. Well, geez, I mean, talk about your Southern hospitality. Thanks for having me, David. I'm feeling very welcome. Uh, thank you for, for that. And uh, yeah, man, I guess I guess it, it's been a while, but I'm glad I'm glad to be talking to you today. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New yeah, Year. I feel like I'm a I feel like I've got like a little fan thing going here because I, I have seen you a lot on, on MSNBC and this is the first time we've actually talked. And so I'm, I'm kind of nervous. He's, uh, he's fangirling out. That's cool. I, I, I am, I am here for it. And any excuse to share a Southern accent with somebody, I, you know, you, you guys have <laughs> had me uh, at, 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 at y'all. So here, here I am. Let's go. Great. Great. Well, let's get started. So uh, your old stomping grounds, Atlanta had a lot going on uh, earlier this week uh, yeah. with the election. My whole and, home state. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, I wanted to, I want, I said to Josh that we should have you on because I actually thought you were still in Atlanta. I didn't realize you were you were living somewhere else now, but that's okay. My mind you, is always in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm there in spirit. You're there in spirit. So let me let me ask you first of all, how surprised were you that uh, that Georgia now has two Democrats, one of whom is the first African American in the history of uh, of, uh, of the state of Georgia to represent it in the U.S. Senate, and the other. Uh, I don't I don't know if if, if uh, Osloff's uh, election as a person of Jewish ancestry is historic, but we know that that is a, that, that is a first for the state. He's also first? now oh, the okay. youngest senator. OK, uh, OK, OK. Yeah. So what what's your reaction to all that? You know, I think it's remarkable. Uh, I, I will say that I was stunned, but not necessarily surprised, just uh, as somebody who. Uh, in a previous life, uh, when I was uh, at the Associated Press Bureau in Atlanta, I was covering the Georgia legislature when Stacey Abrams was the uh, minority leader in the Georgia House and watched her, uh, you know, kind of start to build um, the infrastructure that, that brought us to the moment that we found ourselves in, 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 uh, in Georgia politics on Tuesday night uh, and, and really uh, in November, uh, to be honest. So, uh, the expansion of the electorate in Georgia has really been um, something to watch. Uh, and, and that was the work of, of obviously Stacey Abrams being kind of the most prominent person doing that work uh, this cycle. But but there are so many black women organizers that had been on the ground across that state. Uh, you know, Latasha Brown, a daughter of Alabama, um, you know, co-founder of Black Voters Matter, uh, which has been uh, organizing across the Deep South, but was certainly very focused on Georgia uh, and rural black voters. Uh, this cycle, uh, Inse Ufat uh, of the New Georgia Project, which Stacey Abrams founded in 2014, right? And that she took over after Abrams uh, left to run for governor. Uh, you think about uh, folks like Helen Butler, who had been long working uh, on the ground. I mean, I could, I could name so many Black women organizers who have been doing this work and really talking to people who had not felt like previously seen and heard uh, in Georgia politics, as you think about it. I mean, if, if it's an off-year uh, election, uh, a lot of those districts, you've got folks that are gerrymandered. And so even though, you know, you may have 
uh, counties or districts uh, in the state that might have, you know, sizable black populations uh, because of gerrymandering. They knew that they had no real chance of, of really having their vote matter. Uh, but in statewide and federal uh, elections, uh, the idea of one person, one vote really feels a lot more real uh, for those folks if you can make the case to them. And, and so that was really a lot of what uh, people like um, Stacey Abrams and others uh, were doing. Uh, and that is really what made the difference, uh, not just in November, but really uh, you think about a, a runoff election and just how um, much we tend to expect uh, turnout to drop off, but people were absolutely still mobilized and galvanized and energized. I mean, you think about Georgia, uh, my mom is still lives in Georgia. She's somebody who's a super voter, votes in every single election. By the time you get to this past Tuesday, Georgia voters um, had been to the polls uh, at least half a dozen times hmm. in, between special elections and primaries and runoffs. So, uh, you know, they're COVID fatigued, they're election fatigued, but they still came out and voted in record numbers. And, and I think that what is probably the, uh, the last thing I'll say about this that, that was most remarkable, um, even more amazing than the idea that black voters could turn out in such a way uh, that, that you would get, um, you know, the first black senator and and um, and two uh, Democratic senators out of, out of a state that had been reliably red for so many years uh, was was the idea that that what Tuesday was also about was was a rejection of the politics of voter suppression that had long been present uh, in Georgia and, uh, you know, expanding the electorate, the idea that the election was gonna really come down to voter suppression versus voter turnout, uh, to see that play out and to see voter turnout uh, be the winner on Tuesday night was also um, something that I think we should not be missing uh, as a storyline of, of what came, came out of these runoff elections. So the, uh, the, the, the storyline, Stacey Abrams and other black women voting rights advocates and the demographic of black women and black people are essential to this. But there's also been talk that suburban Republican women were key to this as well. Do you do you agree with that or do you see that? Well, I mean, I think we still need to look at the the um, the exit polls and the and the and the and the data uh, that, that's going to come out of uh, of this election. But look, I think that um, there were suburban women uh, who did vote, uh, who, who still suburban Republican women who still supported uh, the president uh, in November, right? For all the talk about suburban women and what Republican women were going to do and were they going to be turned off to the president's message? There were actually more white women uh, that, that voted Republican than, than, than voted for uh, Donald Trump in 2016. So, you know, I think that while we heard a lot of them say, certainly I talked to a lot of uh, conservative women um, it, headed into the general election who maybe didn't like the president's rhetoric, maybe wished, you know, that he wouldn't say, say or do certain things on Twitter, but they were absolutely on board with his agenda. Uh, absolutely felt like he did the best that he could in terms of responding to the pandemic. Uh, they were on board with his message that the country needed to reopen because they were in communities where they saw you know, the economy really uh, being uh, battered and, and businesses really hurting. Uh, and so, uh, you know, though with President Trump not on the ballot, uh, I think that there probably were, uh, I mean, these were close races in Georgia, even though Democrats were victorious, there, there were still 
you know, millions of Republicans who also came out and voted, uh, despite the president's disinformation campaign about, you know, the, the rigged election that that he, um, you know, in reality did lose. So, um, you know, for, for them to still come out uh, and, and be on board with uh, the, um, you know, with David Perdue and Kelly Leffler, um, I think tells you a lot. I don't know what the gender breakdown of that is, but I, I would be very interested to see it because, uh, you know, just as white women uh, were largely on board with the Republican Party in November, I think that, that the same is probably uh, going to bear out in, in the results of that runoff. So real quick follow up, uh, Aaron and Josh, um, the uh, 538, you know, Nate Silver's uh, website, yeah. uh, their analysis on election night was that there was split ticket voting that explained the victory of Biden in November. Uh, and they were suggesting that perhaps that could also end up being a factor uh, during this runoff. You know, mm-hmm. in other words, you had people that were rejecting Trump, but were still voting for Purdue and Loeffler, which is why they got the victory. And, and, I, and so that's what I'm looking at as I as I raise this possibility that perhaps suburban white uh, women or just suburban whites, period, uh, uh, yeah. factor into this as well. Yeah. And I mean, look, um, the, the, I think the concern about a split ticket in the runoff was why, uh, you know, uh, Warnock and Ossoff smartly decided to run as a ticket, right, headed into the runoff. And I think you saw some of that with, with, with Purdue and Leffler, but, but I think really uh, Warnock and, 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 um, and Ossoff tied their fates to each other. Uh, Warnock, obviously, um, being pastor of, of Martin Luther King's spiritual home, Ebenezer Baptist Church, had a lot of name ID, certainly in Metro Atlanta, but I think really across the state. Um, and, and I think that that did help uh, John Ossoff, uh, who was somebody who was younger, who had run before, but who had not uh, won uh, elected office before. Uh, and so um, also, I think the idea that they both uh, tied themselves not only to each other, but also to the legacy of John Lewis uh, as students of John Lewis, as people who had a chance to learn from John Lewis before, uh, you know, the congressman's uh, unfortunate passing, uh, even in the midst of this pandemic last year. Um, you know, because of his succumbing to his battle uh, with with cancer. But, um, you know, the legacy of John Lewis, John Lewis is somebody who would have been like the most prominent, uh, you know, surrogate uh, for them headed into uh, these runoffs. He's somebody who we know was a voting rights champion. Right. And so would have been pushing back against that voter suppression. And so, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, part of uh the strategy for, for, for their victory uh, was, was aligning with each other and also aligning with the legacy of, of John Lewis that, that was a very powerful message, I think, um, not just for Democrats, but maybe even uh, for, for, for Georgians who, um, you know, were, were tired of a lot of the divisiveness and, and, and found a message uh, of unity that, that resonated with them as well. Yeah, I, I think those debates, uh, you know, will probably result in the Republicans never, ever again debating anyone ever, because God forbid they have to stand up before anybody and answer questions and be prepared. Well, uh, I mean, yeah. well, and, and also, I mean, de- debating, debating a podium, uh, I think yeah. that 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 certainly <laughs> helped uh, John Ossoff down the stretch. But even the the, one, the debate that he did have yeah. uh, with David yeah. Perdue, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the clips from that went 
went pretty viral and, and people's assessment of, of Kelly Leffler as somebody who really stuck to the script, right? Um, <laughs> when uh, she was debating uh, Raphael Warnock, uh, you know, she, she didn't come off as, as um, particularly a particularly skilled debater in that. And I think that that, uh, that did help him uh, with, with some number of voters as well, to your point. Yeah, I, you know, and I want to I want to go back a little bit uh, because you know we're here in Alabama and we're we're essentially where Georgia was I, I assume ten fifteen years ago uh, because that's where we typically are with every other state is ten fifteen years behind. Uh, but um, and uh, in in terms of you know where we are politically with the Democratic Party in this state. Uh, we are taking a look at what Stacey Abrams has done there in Georgia, uh, and we see the results now. And so we're trying to figure out a way to get ourselves to this position, you know, 10 years or so or less, hopefully down the road. What when, when you look back at it uh, in the history there in Georgia? Is there are there things that you can pinpoint and say this was a this was a turning point for them? This was something that she did, or was it just a simple you got to work every day, work hard, and as it grows, it you know you see it uh, you'll see it from the backside of this, but you'll never know it as you go forward. You know that's interest that, that's really interesting uh, to think about uh, on a couple of levels, uh, and I do think you know. It's interesting. Latasha Brown, uh, the, the co-founder of Black Voters Matter, mm-hmm. who is a daughter of Selma, uh, mm-hmm. you know, one of the early uh, tests for that organization was the Doug Jones race, uh, you know, in 2017 yeah. and the work that they did to organize black women, to particularly rural black women in Alabama, uh, you know, to uh, to elect Doug Jones. Now, um, obviously, he did not win reelection uh, in, in, in uh, the November election, but I think um, Stacey Abrams is clear that that what what she has built in Georgia is a blueprint that can be replicated across the deep south uh especially in states that have significant black populations right that have been untapped uh or or you know who maybe have a history of voting but need to be engaged as regular voters right like like um Alabama is certainly a, a, a electorate that is ripe for that uh, i would say another um state that is right for that is Mississippi. I mean, you look at Mississippi was on my mind so much uh, in particularly in this runoff election, because Kelly Leffler is so similar to Cindy Hyde Smith, who Mm -hmm. did win her reelection to Senate. Right. I mean, here we have two Southern white Republican women who, you know, share political DNA. Right. I mean, their crucial support bases were the same Trump embracing white Southern men. They both ran against these like respected bridge building black male opponents and they both vilified those black men as, you know, like radical or corrupt. Right. Uh, They both came into the Senate appointed by uh, these governors who were Trump acolytes and they were expected to also get on board uh, with President Trump and both did so. Right. Uh, and, 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 And both were like super scripted in their public remarks. But the difference between. Georgia and Mississippi in terms of the electorate and in terms of the dynamics from a class standpoint, from a geography standpoint, from, I mean, you know, um, the influx of, of people into Georgia, uh, you know, those voters uh, that expanded the electorate, not only in terms of demography, but also just folks who did not necessarily subscribe 
to kind of the old South playbook, political playbook, right? Uh, as opposed to Mississippi, where you have a lot of the brain trust moving out of the state. That's a factor. You know, Georgia obviously has the huge, you know, metro area of Atlanta. Mississippi doesn't necessarily have that. Alabama doesn't necessarily have an Atlanta to capitalize on, right? To make up for, um, you know, the lack of support that you may get from rural voters. So like you, that much more of a focus on rural voters, rural black voters is something that Alabama could do to maybe change uh, their political fortunes. But I mean, you know, um, the, the um, and, and really it, it's not that there are certainly black women organizers uh, in places mm-hmm. like Alabama, certainly in places like Mississippi, but really have them having the infrastructure and the resources to be able to carry out what a Stacey Abrams uh, is able to do. I mean, because obviously there was a ton of money poured into these runoffs and there was a ton of money poured into uh, Georgia in the general election just because uh, of Stacey Abrams and her star power and what they were able to do um, with the funding they got because uh, they had a plan, right? And I think there's a lot of organizers that have plans, but without the funding to make those plans real, uh, I think that that is also a missing piece. Yeah, it's just, you know, I, I wonder how much of a factor that it, those Atlanta suburbs are that we can't necessarily replicate uh, there. So, you know, I, and I don't, I think we're, we're moving closer there. You know, we have Birmingham is, you know, in Jefferson County is not bad. Uh, and I think we're getting closer to what you talked about with the influx of people coming in uh, in the Madison Huntsville area uh, of the state up here, you know, with, with a, uh, I mean, because there is a massive influx of people from outside of the state into here and they don't feel that same way in a lot of those numbers are reflected in the recent elections. But I just wonder if, uh, you know, if, if we aren't uh, a ways away from it, just simply because uh, they were able to do that because of what happened in Atlanta and, uh, you know, and just the kind of the, the demographics there that, that lend itself to not only uh, a higher turnout uh, for African-Americans, but also for white people there that that live with other African-Americans. That's absolutely and, and, a part of it. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that, that that plays a huge role in this. That's absolutely part of it. And also, frankly, Latinos. I mean, we have to talk about the, the Latinos and Asians who were also part of that coalition. Um, you know, Latinos in, in North Georgia, but also in Metro Atlanta, uh, there were, you know, Latino organizers who, I mean, basically reached out to every Latino voter in the state, which is more than a notion, right? Talked to them, engaged with them, and got them, and got them uh, involved in this election. Uh, the Asian population in Georgia voted nearly on par with, with the, their representation. Uh, as uh, you know, in terms of the state population like that, that's unheard of. Uh, so expanding uh, that electorate is is as important or, or if not more important as people like Stacey Abrams would argue than going after white folks who have been gone for cycle after cycle after cycle. Right. And who probably, frankly, are not coming back like, you know, kind of what the ceiling is uh, for white voters. But 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 there is an. Uh, vastly untapped uh, electorate uh, in, in terms of voters of color. Uh, and, and, you know, for, for, for your money as an organizer, uh, what most of them tell me is that uh, that money is better spent trying to engage and persuade the folks that, you know, if, if they could be persuaded to vote, you probably can guess who they might vote for. Right. Yeah. Right. It's a, yeah there's not a lot of me's out there. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, in this we, area we, of the world. Not, not a lot of me's. You're, you're the unicorn that we love, Josh. We love you. 
Um, Aaron, before we get you out of here, I want you to tell us about the 19th and uh, your transition into this uh, new, exciting uh, form of journalism. Oh, David, thank you so much for uh, for asking, uh, because I am always thrilled to talk about uh, my newsroom and my new dream job, as I like to tell people. Uh, listen, I mean, I'm somebody who spent most of my career covering issues of race and the intersection of race and, and culture and politics. Um, but, you know, um, after covering the 2016 election where, you know, you've had a woman uh, making history as the first um, woman to be nominated, you know, for, um, you know, as a major uh, party nominee for president, seeing the gendered, uh, you know, narratives around uh, her race, um, you know, and wondering how much of that was really about the candidate herself and just, you know, uh, how people felt about her, given how long she had been uh, in our, you know, kind of political memory and how much of that was really about gender, right? Because I think what a lot of people told me, a lot of voters that I talked to coming out of 2016 was not that, you know, it's not that they couldn't vote for a woman, they just couldn't vote for that woman, right? And so fast forward to 2020 uh, and going into, uh, you know, what was the most diverse primary um, field that we'd ever seen uh, in our politics uh, around race and gender, uh, historic six women, you know, standing for office and yet seeing the same types of narratives, uh, not only around gender, but also around race um, was extremely frustrating for me, especially when I knew even before the pandemic, even before the national reckoning on race, that uh, race and gender weren't just going to be a storyline of, of the 2020 cycle. They were going to be the storyline. Right. And so um, with that being the case, it was in with with that mindset that that my now boss, uh, our CEO, Emily Ramshaw, reached out to me and said, hey, thinking about starting a newsroom that uh, really tries to uh, recast a narrative around gender and politics. And I was just like, sounds great. Raise some money and get back to me, right? But like she absolutely <laughs> did do that. And so, you know, a year ago now, um, you know, we were launching the 19th, which is a newsroom that is named for the 19th Amendment, uh, which uh, for uh, folks who don't know is, uh, you know, guaranteed the right for um, some women, but not all women uh, to vote 100 years ago last year. And uh, we have an asterisk in our logo uh, that is in recognition of the black women who frankly were um, stepped over and sacrificed so that white women could have their access to the ballot uh, in 1920. And it would take another nearly half century uh, for black women uh, and others to, to gain their full access to the franchise with the passing of the Voting Rights Act. And so uh, what our newsroom aims to do is uh, to really continue to expand access and participation uh, in this democracy for anybody who has felt uh, marginalized, uh, both in terms of race and gender uh, or in any other or marginalized in any other way. Uh, we want uh, the, for those folks to feel seen and heard in our democracy and to, and to uh, take their rightful place as participants. Uh, in, in our democracy. And so, you know, obviously we did not envision starting a newsroom in a pandemic. Uh, you know, the, 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 you know, elections, especially presidential elections for political journalists tend to be like the Super Bowl. Uh, so not being on the campaign trail, uh, you know, three months into a very exciting primary was kind of a bummer. But uh, what I came to realize was that our newsroom was absolutely at the intersection of everything. 
uh, by the time uh, we got to the election. And so we had a very uh, exciting and auspicious beginning uh, to um, what we are trying to do. And I feel like we have absolutely begun to change the narrative around uh, gender and politics and what we are saying about who and where we are uh, as the majority of this electorate. Um, and so I'm just really looking forward now to focusing on how, not only how uh, women and marginalized folks campaign and win office, but, but now how they lead and govern, uh, which is what we're getting ready to kind of shift our attention to as a new administration takes place, as, as state houses are reconvening and uh, yeah, so it's it's an exciting time. Do you uh, final question? Do you expect to pay particular attention to the the incoming vice president, who is not only African American and Asian and a woman, but who also is an HBCU grad and a member of one of the Divine Nine uh, sororities and fraternities? Uh, absolutely, Kamala Harris will be a focus for our newsroom and for me in particular. I mean, I uh, covered her, uh, you know, from the time that she launched her bid for president as the only black woman uh, in the field to, uh, you know, just kind of seeing how race and gender played out in her presidential bid uh, and then how it set her up uh, to make history as, uh, you know, the first woman vice president, the first uh, person of color uh, that we've had. Uh, to, to be vice president uh, in this country. It, it, it is uh, extremely exciting to think about what that leadership looks like based on uh, her, the variety of lived experiences that she brings to this office and how that could translate into leadership and policy and that visibility and what that is going to mean uh, for so many people who are seeing themselves reflected uh, in her uh, as part of our electorate. So uh, yes, stay tuned. <laughs> I will be <laughs> all over uh, you know, Kamala Harris's uh, historic uh, historic role uh, and, and how that is playing out in, in our politics going forward. And that is what and that is part of what will make the 19th and Aaron Haynes's work must read material. Aaron, thank you for joining us. And uh, we hope that you'll come back. Oh, gosh. Thank yes, you all for having you. me. I would love to come back anytime uh, to, to chat with you about all things politics, uh, football, whatever, whatever, whatever we need to talk about in here. I am here for. All right. Yeah, it's, uh, thank you. it's been great. Really, really appreciate it a lot. Well, thanks so much. I look forward to uh, talking to you all again, and maybe we can even do this in person when it's safe for us to do that again one day. Sounds great. Sounds great. Absolutely. Hey, just wanted to take a second to uh, thank the AFL-CIO uh, for their support of the podcast here at Alabama Politics this week. And really thank them for all that they do for us and for the workers all around uh, Alabama. Uh, the Alabama AFL-CIO, which you can find at alaflcio.com. Again, that's alaflcio.com. Uh, go to their, their website. Uh, they, they do great work at, at helping you organize, uh, teaching you about the benefits of a union, uh, teaching you about how to how to go about filing grievances and everything else that goes with, with being a union member. And especially in this time, COVID-19 is so prevalent and, um, you know, a lot of workers are having problems with 
precautions not necessarily being taken or getting relief uh, that they need because of wage losses and job losses, go over there to the website, take a look at the reports that are there, take a look at the guidance that they have, uh, utilize some of those, uh, some of the fine people that are working in Alabama AFL-CIO uh, and, and take advantage of, of what a union can bring. Uh, and that's especially true if you're working at a place that does not necessarily have a union. Uh, I think you can read, uh, read all about that with the, uh, with the folks working at Amazon currently uh, in this state. And you can see the benefits that kind of come along with being a union member. Uh, again, that's A-L-A-F-L-C-I-O.com. A-L-A-F-L-C-I-O.com. Welcome back. Hey, uh, this is uh, we're gonna we're gonna close quick uh, because I know <laughs> we uh, we've probably gone way over the uh, overboard here uh, in time. But listen, hey, it's our first one back. We had a lot to say. You know, we've been yeah, on for two weeks. Lot to cover. You know what? If you don't want to yeah. listen, turn the damn thing off. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. That's all I can tell you. I mean, stop and, it. Start it. Play and it I, later. And I, and I think it was important for us to hear from uh, House Minority Leader Anthony Daniels about his. COVID situation. I think yes. that was really important. I do too. I think that, uh, and hopefully that'll, that'll make some people rethink some things. I know it did me, uh, mm-hmm. really, honestly, I, you know, um, you hear the stories about the younger people and, you know, uh, I, I don't get sick a lot, uh, at all. You know, I'm, I'm very, I've, I've gone, I've gone years without going to the, to the doctor. Uh, you know, uh, for, for anything and having any sort of problems outside of a few minor allergies or things like that. And, you know, I've never had the flu, uh, never had any, any serious illness, you know, other than an appendix rupture once, but uh, otherwise nothing, you know? Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a good two weeks in the hospital there. Uh, but um, yeah, so, you know, I, I it just, it, you know, I, I've always been like, yeah, listen, I'm going to do what I need to do, but you know, I'm not, I mean, you know how it was. I mean, I, you know, I didn't, I thought it was, you know, I, I, listen, I'll be fine. Whatever. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, but I've, you know, I, I do now, man. I, yeah, you know, I got my mask. I got my, my hand sanitizer. If I have to go somewhere, then, you know, we don't go, we don't go eat uh, hardly anywhere anymore. Um, you know, we did for a little while in the summer, we would go, we would go to outdoor places uh, and eat. Uh, right. but you know, now in the winter time, I mean, you know, if you got to sit inside, we pretty much don't go. And so it's just, uh, you know, it's just a change in attitude, but I, I do think that was important because I think that, uh, uh, maybe it'll, maybe it'll save some people's lives and, um, you know, and, and I also think the other discussion is important too, about what took place Wednesday and, and uh, and not yeah. just from a, from a national perspective, but from a local one, um, and, and the involvement of these Alabama elected officials and Alabama Republican voters uh, that went there as well. And as uh, our, our famed producer, uh, uh, who, you know, he, I don't understand why he doesn't just get on the show sometimes and, and mention these things, but he just sends me messages about the <laughs> stuff right in the middle of the show. And instead of just popping on and saying, Hey, you gotta talk about this. Uh, but uh, you know, he, he brought up the fact that there were buses of people from Alabama that went to this ridiculous rally. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, as we were discussing uh, off the air, but or off uh, air, we're not really on the air. Well, not off the air, but the same difference. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Same difference. Not, not on the recording. Um, It, they, they were not, most of them were not involved in what took place at the Capitol, but they were still there for this rally. Um, 
this rally against a free and fair and properly properly executed election that took place that has been adjudicated nearly 70 times at this point in a variety of courts all over this country. Uh, there has been not one shred of proof of fraud, not one. OK, and this the crap that they brought in evidence of that, the crap that they brought up uh, Wednesday night. Uh, in the U.S. Senate, from Hawley and Cruz and uh, the other guy that that that, that backed it uh, early on, I can't remember who the who the first guy was for Arizona. They the things that they cited as evidence uh, and and reason for their objections to Arizona and Pennsylvania's uh, uh, electoral votes, were, th- those things have been uh, th- there. None of that was new ground. I mean, that stuff in Pennsylvania where they're talking about they passed these laws, the Republicans passed those laws a year beforehand, (laughs) and it didn't become an issue until, oh, my God, we see that Donald Trump's going to lose because of mail-in votes. You know, it just is insane. And I I know that it's a misinformation situation where these people are not are choosing not to get accurate information because it reinforces what they want to believe. Um, And and that's what's taking place here. And this is the reason we are what we are. Yeah. Yeah. Despite 56, uh, was it 56 court rulings or 60 court rulings? 67, I believe at this point. Yeah, you know, including one ruling uh, at, at the Supreme Court where the Trump appointees on the Supreme Court said, uh, yeah, we don't want to hear yeah. this case. Nah. <laughs> nah. I'm, look, nah, I'm, we'll pass if on I'm that, not buddy. mistaken, there have been more than 20 of these rulings at federal court that were from Trump appointed judges. Uh, yeah. uh, and I mean, yeah, some of these people some, are some real hacks number. now. And uh, and the, the idea that they even they could not find evidence enough to even allow these things to move forward past uh, the initial filing stages there uh, is because in a lot of them, in a lot of those cases on the filings, they went in and said, we do not have specific evidence of this, uh, right. you know, however, yeah. However, even we, though we, we know to this exam- is a court of they law. Wanted, what they and, wanted to do was use the court process you know, and discovery process to, to find court, evidence. Right. Court, courts of law, you know, the whole point of going to court is to present evidence. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point. So you go into court without evidence, then a judge is going to say, well, what the hell are you doing? Here? Yeah. Well, you don't have any evidence. And that's what 67 of them have said uh, or more. Yeah. And it yeah. just, you know, I, that's I think that's part of the the disappointing thing to me is um, mm-hmm. is just how many people have been totally suckered because they wanted to be suckered uh, by this. And, and that's. That's what's taking place. They have been suckered. Uh, and listen, it's been going on for a long time. I mean, you know, Republicans have been suckering them for, for a while, especially working people. I mean, the number of working people that took off to go to Washington, D.C. Uh, to protest a, a, a properly run election on behalf of a guy that could not give two dams for them uh, is off the charts. While at the same time, they hate and loathe uh, the, the group of people that are trying to help them the most uh, in their own state. Mm. I mean, you know, the pro-union, pro-worker trying to get you extra money, trying Trying to save your small business uh, party uh, that the Democrats are here. They hate them. In the meantime, they love Trump that just keeps cutting taxes for the wealthy people and because of, and they love them because of the 401ks, which most of them don't have. 
And it just. Yeah. Well, you know, again, this is, as you said, the con job, the premise of the con job is this could be you. One day this could be you or this should be you, you know, so that's how they make it work. And uh, you're right. They're voting against their own interests for the sake of people that don't give two darns about them and who won't give two darns about them because they see them as cogs in the wheel. They don't get that. It's sad. But this is the same playbook that has been utilized for well over 100 years, especially in the South, but throughout the country. Yeah. And, throughout and, the country. Yeah, you're right. And, and you know, that's what got me uh, before all the craziness on Wednesday. Uh, you know, we like I said before, we we kind of forgotten that there was a, a pretty important Senate race, uh, two Senate races over in Georgia that, that, that determined control of the Senate. And the Democrats are now going to be in the majority. And uh, and so you can expect another round of, of stimulus payments coming your way. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and not only that, but help for city and, uh, you know, for local and, and state governments and, and, a, and a variety of things that are going to really help that, you know, spur the economy. But, you know. There were Republicans in this state, elected officials, uh, Will Ainsworth was one, uh, who said, oh, well, looks like the socialists are in control. I pray for our country and what this is going to become under Democratic control. Um, Could we look around Alabama for just a second and see what has happened (laughs) under Republican control for the last decade? Because we got a pretty good shining example of where Republican control and Republican policy takes a, a, a state uh, on a body of people. And um, if I'm, is there a category where we don't rank 45th or lower? No, but that's acceptable, Josh. That's acceptable. It's okay. Uh, for for what? I mean, and that's what I'm saying is why are people, why are working people in Alabama accepting of this? You know, I think if we could, if we could get to the true root of that answer, uh, we, you and I would probably, you and I could probably retire on the money that we could make. I don't understand it. <laughs> I've never understood it. I don't understand it now. But I will say that I believe that a lot of this, uh, the, a lot of that mindset really is rooted in the South's original sin of uh, enslaving uh, black people and then creating a hierarchy a social hierarchy based on slavery and then based on segregation and Jim Crow. Uh, I think a lot of that is embedded in that. There's this idea that you're okay as long as you're not a black person. That goes all the way back to slavery, the, the era of slavery. And I think that there's still some residual kind of thinking based in that that allows people, and I'm talking now about poor, low-class, working-class whites. I'm talking about, when I say low-class, I don't mean low-class people. I mean lower-class economically, okay? Mm, Uh, Poor people, poor whites. I'll just say it Mm -hmm. that way. Poor whites uh, who have to to find a way to reconcile their impoverished state with what they see with other whites— and other people, and I think it's rooted in that. I really do believe there's a deep psychological s- dysfunction. That's what I think it is. Yeah. Well, I, and I, I, to that point, I will say that I think a uh, that that rich Southerners figured out a long time ago 
that you can get a poor white person to vote against giving himself a benefit if you tell him that that same benefit will go to a black yeah. person. Um, and, and and that happens all the well, time. Well, the history, uh, yeah, that, history that documents. Is, yeah, well, I mean, just let I me mean, look around at, at what we what we talk about with our social, our our, our net, you know, these these safety nets uh, that that are there that that aid all kinds of poor people, uh, you know. Uh, but if you make that white person believe that the black person or the Hispanic person is also going to receive those social benefits, and how they are somehow not deserving of those, and them receiving them means they just won't work, you know, because you know the non-white person. They don't. They don't take benefits like we do. You know, those benefits that lift us up out of poverty, and so we go get a job and better our families. That doesn't happen with those other people. You know, because we've been able to stereotype them. And that was another point that I wanted to bring up because I can't help but notice around Atlanta, uh, in the suburbs of Atlanta, where. Um, all of the the newfound democratic votes came from over the last several elections. You know, a lot of those votes were white people there. And so it seems to me that maybe the idea of white people and black people living and coexisting among each other there and understand having a better understanding of each other you remove a lot of those stereotypes that tells you that Somehow black people, uh, for white people, that, that black people are, uh, are lazy or they, they're not going to work for these things. And you come to understand that everybody is essentially the same. They want to get up. They want to go to a decent job every day. They want to earn a living. They want to be able to pay their bills and have nice things for their families and see their kids do well and sleep at night soundly, knowing that they're not going to have to struggle day in and day out. That's what people want. 99% of people, it doesn't matter the color of your skin or anything else, that's what they want. And I think when you have that situation like we have in the suburbs of Atlanta now, uh, and in other suburbs, uh, you know, around Birmingham and uh, Montgomery and some other places, you also see a lot of that. I think a lot of that has, uh, has changed the way a lot of white people think about these things, and it has benefited Democrats tremendously in those areas. All right, well. From your lips, you Josh, so? to God's I mean, you ears. Think I'm off? You, 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 think, you think I'm wrong? No, I that? think you're on point. And I think uh, the, what happened in Georgia is a testament to that. Um, as, uh, you know, as we saw with uh, just this week, it was the combination of superb voter turnout efforts by Stacey Abrams and her and her organization with I think, quite honestly, to go to your point, the conversion of uh, of uh, white white Atlanteans in the suburbs who realized that uh, you know there need to be some changes. So, no, I think you're I think you're on point with that. All right. Well, I just I you know I like to hear the confirmation. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> uh, all right. Well, one other thing. Uh, that we need to we needed to bring up yeah. uh, was you know we were all kind of waiting uh, to see what was going to happen with the AG's position uh, you know and and Doug Jones was rumored to be and I think was pretty accurate uh, that he and and Merrick Garland were were the two nominees left on uh, Joe Biden's uh, short list uh, for that position and uh, he Biden ultimately chose Merrick Garland and I think the 
the reasoning for that, at least on uh, that, that has been presented, uh, has, is that he felt like Garland was a more uh, was, was a choice that would indicate to Republicans out there uh, that he was serious about a non-part returning this to a non-partisan uh, entity at the DOJ that where they were we were going to stop this trend that that Trump had started where the AG it was somehow a personal attorney for the president and that Merrick Garland. Uh, wasn't a more independent entity there than than Doug Jones was. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think Doug yeah, I don't is, is as independent as you can get. Yeah. Uh, and I thought Doug would have made a great AG, and he would have been uh, very popular among the civil rights groups out there. Uh, and so I think that all of that would have worked well for Doug. And and they were waiting on this election to determine whether or not the Democrats were going to have control of the Senate so they could fill Merrick Garland's seat on the federal bench. Uh, and they did not want that to, another Republican seat there, especially in D.C. Right. And so, you know, so that leaves that leaves Doug out a little bit. Uh, and I was I, honestly I, I, was, I was very, very disappointed in, in that. Um you know, nothing against Merrick Garland, but yeah. I, you know, I, I feel like Doug has has proven himself to be a a very very serious um, statesman and and public servant and someone who is very um, very willing to work with everybody and be very professional and and do his best for the American people and I, and I feel like what took place there was not very fair to him. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I would say it was unfair because I don't think he was entitled to to be considered no. or or entitled to the position. But I do agree with you that he would have been an excellent choice. And yeah. and I'm and I'm disappointed that he did not have that opportunity uh, to uh, to try to uh, work because I think he would have done a great job. So my question to you is, mm-hmm. in light of the fact that he hasn't been selected. And so now currently Doug doesn't have a political position or an elected political position. What do you think is next for Doug? What do you think is on the horizon for him? Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I think that there will be some opportunities uh, for him uh, to work with uh, within the Biden administration. Uh, you know, I, I, I'll i be interested to see what, what comes about if there are some, uh, uh, maybe possibly some uh, maybe, maybe even a federal judge spot uh, that has floated his way. Um, and, and I want to back up just a second, and I want to tell you why, what, why I said unfair. Uh, and I didn't mean okay. because Doug was owed that position. What, mm-hmm. I, what I meant was is I felt like a lot of uh, a lot of the reason why Merrick Garland, who's a good guy and, and a good judge, and, and I'm not diminishing him in any way, but mm-hmm. I felt like the, the, the reason he was a popular pick was because of what happened with him with the SCOTUS nomination a few years ago. And I felt like that, you know, if you balance the two per, the two people out and, and remove that out of the equation, I felt like Doug was a better choice for AG given his history as a prosecutor uh, and some other things that had, has gone on there, especially in this time when so many civil rights issues have, have popped up because of the last president and his line of AGs right. uh, and what Jeff Sessions did to destroy the civil rights department uh, at the attorney general's office and the uh, department of justice. I felt like replacing those things with Doug Jones, who, who is, champion civil rights stuff uh as a prosecutor and and in other ways in his life i i felt like that would have been a 
a, a more fair thing for the, that department and what it needed. And that's the reason why I said I, I felt like it was unfair, just because I felt like some things, outside things, played into that decision that weren't necessarily relevant to the job position. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, that's uh, – and also the the deal about Garland being more popular with Republicans. I, I'm I'm honestly I don't give a shit what Republicans think anymore. All right, yeah. I, I don't. Yeah. I mean, you know, if if we're gonna if they're gonna act the way they've acted and do the things that they've done, you know, to hell with them. You know, put in who you need to put in to get the right things done, and don't worry about what Republicans. I'm with think. you 100 percent on that, Josh. I mean, it's it's time to stop coddling uh, the uh, the delicate sensibilities of these Republican. I think the word some of them would use is snowflakes. You know, we need to stop coddling them and just, you know, hey, this is politics is a grown person's game. So pull up your panties, pull up your boxers and just deal. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm 100 percent. Listen, if they're willing to undermine an election to get their way out of things, if they're willing to go to these steps to to. Uh, to win. Right. You know what? I mean, that's, that's who they are, man. Stop yeah. worrying about them. That's right. Stop worrying about trying to, they understand power and strength and doing what you want to do. That's all they understand. And until you do the same way and play the same game, they're never going to understand it. They're never going to respect it. And they're always going to cheat and lie and steal. So do what needs to happen, man. Yeah. The best, the best way to deal with a bully is to stand up to the bully and punch that that joker in the nose or kick him in the nuts, as the case may be. <laughs> yeah, you know, or sometimes do both. Yeah, uh, you yeah, know, that's appropriate. Uh, yeah. That's appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got we got to slide out, but before we do, we, we don't leave without the right wing note of the week. Uh, and and this week, uh, uh, Dave, I, you know, Dave, it was yours. It's your right wing nut, man. You want to introduce that? Well, guy? sure, I can introduce him. Uh, he is a newly elected delegate from. The state of West Virginia, so he's a West Virginia lawmaker. His name is Derek mm-hmm. Evans, and he was caught on camera. In fact, it was actually his own camera, apparently, uh, when he surged <laughs> through a door in the interior of the Capitol building. So, Mr. Derek Evans, lawmaker Derek Evans, delegate Derek, Derek Evans of West Virginia, uh, streamed video of himself participating in the penetration of the Capitol building. And uh good job, Derek. And yeah, that was that was really smart. It was a good job. Good job for him. And now he has uh he is incurring the wrath of people in his state, Josh, and uh, and his own delegates, House of Delegates colleagues. Uh in fact the speaker for the West Virginia uh House of Delegates, Roger Hanshaw has said that Evans needs to answer to his constituents and colleagues regarding his involvement and what has occurred today. So this guy was smart enough, and I say that with, uh, you know, my tone dripping with facetiousness. He was smart enough to document his own, uh, you know, uh, disruptive behavior, possibly done so in violation of uh, of. Uh, the tenets of uh, of conduct for a House of Delegates member in West Virginia, and that's why he's our right wing nut of the week. 
Solid work by Derek there. It's uh, it's uh, he uh, he is uh, obviously a very smart person. I can't believe he's not from Alabama. <laughs> uh, it really, it's uh, great job, at this point, boy. He great and Mo job. Brooks would make a make a hell of a tag team. Uh, that's honest to God, man. I hope somebody has sent Derek's footage to the FBI because I understand they are looking for footage and photos of the people who stormed the Capitol, mm-hmm. and uh, because they're gonna they're gonna be pressing federal charges against a lot of those people. And so, hopefully, Derek will not be a delegate from West Virginia for Most very much. Virginia longer and he can i uh, hope he uh hope he enjoyed he himself can thank fa- his own hey, facebook man. page for that and his own self exactly phone. yeah good job yeah. yeah good job Derek. i hope you get a lot of hits on that video my man i hope it pays the bills for you for a little while uh let's hey it's a good show back yeah right? man what? good return good to talk yeah. to anthony daniels our our friend and state representative good to talk to aaron haynes of the 19th really good show yeah all right till next week man we're out of here peace